To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. On the program today, tax policy. But trust me, you're going to want to listen to this one. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kyle Rizdal. It is Thursday, today, the 18th of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. Tax policy coming up in the bottom half of the program. But first, this observation. This is going to be one of those context shows, not so much news of the day shows, because that's just the way it works out sometimes. And we're going to start with a question. The question is, what if? The more complete question is what if, after having gotten inflation from 9% to, as of the last reading, 3.4%, what if the Federal Reserve just said, you know what, forget that 2% inflation target we've got, we're good with 3 Well, I'm an economist, so my first reaction is, it depends. Wow, it's not 9%. That's my immediate reaction. I am Andrea Eisfeldt. I am the Lawrence and Lori Fink Endowed Chair in Finance at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. I am Abdullah Albarani, an economist at the Hale College of Business at Northern Kentucky University. Okay, number one, keeping inflation at 3%, which is, to be clear, not something the Fed has said it's interested in. But that last mile from 3 down to the Fed's target of 2 is going to be really hard. But keeping it at 3, well, look, that's going to have some trickle-down effects. I'll make it personal. Uh, So if you tell me that 3% is going to be the expectation moving forward... I'm going to start to expect a 3% raise on an annual basis to cover the loss of purchasing power from inflation. Two words, people. Consumer behavior. If that comes along with a truly tighter uh, monetary stance, then um, I think people will feel it harder to uh, make the changes, make additional changes relative to what they've already done, because they've already maybe switched a little bit to the generic brands, or we've just started to do our grocery shopping, you know, a little more strategically. Also, housing might feel it too. On the one hand, you can, you think, and I think this is kind of the effect that we're seeing so far is that higher interest rates will bring down uh, house price appreciation, bring down the increases in the cost of shelter, Um, On the other hand, it does lead to higher borrowing costs. So we'll call this a thought experiment. 3% leaves us with a little additional uncertainty of, you know, are we going to keep monetary policy tight or are we going to live with, uh, you know, stable inflation, but a higher rate of inflation? 
think that's why the Federal Reserve, even if they do want to increase to 3%, will not do it without thorough uh, communication and studies to, to make that adjustment. Forward guidance is what the Fed calls that. And trust me, they will forward, forward guidance the heck out of this thing. Next meeting of the Central Bank, by the by, end of the month. On Wall Street on this Thursday, green across the board. Details, numbers, you all know the drill. If inflation is going to be sticky right around 3%, and to be clear, the jury is still out on that, people are going to need to be making a steady income. And as we have been reporting, it's become clear that Americans are working much longer than previous generations did. And while more people on the job is, in most cases, a good thing for the economy, four generations together in the workforce, boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z, that can feel a little crowded, and that in turn can get a little awkward. Marketplace's Megan McCarty-Carino reports. Getting turned down for a job is never fun. But the last time it happened to Amy Massingale, she says it really stung. I was told that they were looking for someone with less experience. Massingale, who lives in Portland, Oregon, had applied for a position in business development very similar to her previous job. She seemed to tick all the boxes, went through several rounds of interviews, and had been feeling hopeful. The first thought that came to mind is, oh, I should have dumbed down my interview. And that, I wanted to cry after I had that thought. I just, I felt like that's a really sad state of affairs if I feel like I cannot be my full self. She had already removed a decade of work and the reference to caregiving for family on her resume and begun using touch-up dye to darken the faint halo of gray hairs she noticed in her Zoom reflection. I don't have any problem with going gray. I really don't. It's a non-issue for me. But it's this feeling of society's just kind of discounting me and discounting the totality maybe of my experience and that experience is a bad thing. I I don't understand that. You know, in in my mind, that's a good thing. Massengale isn't even a boomer. She's 55, part of the chronically squeezed and overlooked Generation X. She wrote about her experience on LinkedIn and found a lot of company. Because the longer people work, the harder it becomes to avoid being labeled overqualified for basically any job. I mean, the reality is that overqualified is often a code word for too old. Dana Siamkos heads a New York City digital media recruiting firm called You and Them. She says employers sometimes have legitimate concerns about whether a position will be stimulating or high-paying enough for a more experienced worker. But it's definitely something worth examining in the same way that we are examining other discriminatory behaviors like racism and sexism. Older workers are often stereotyped as Luddites set in their ways, says Peter Capelli, a management professor at the Wharton School. And it's not just discrimination. But also just uncomfortableness. And younger supervisors who are afraid to hire older subordinates. This year, Generation Z, those born from about 1997 to 2013, will likely outnumber boomers in the workforce, while millennials outnumber everyone else, including Gen X. Capelli adds that a business culture that's less hierarchical has made younger bosses more common. Unstated is, I don't know how to manage somebody who looks like my dad, you know. 
That's how Atlanta sales executive Michael Finch felt back before he became a dad and now a grandfather of eight. I think there's just an insecurity that if we bring on this person that has all this experience and all these years, they're going to try to take my job or they're going to make me look bad. Now it's 61. Finch is on the other side. He says he's applied for dozens of positions in the last year and a half after getting laid off from a VP-level job at a medical imaging company. The thought that he's a threat is frustrating. Most of us, we've climbed all the ladders that we want to climb or we're able to. And, you know, I'm not interested so much in, oh, my gosh, I've got to make millions and I've got to have this title and all that. It's just not meaningful. What's meaningful is the work. But job candidates like Finch or Amy Massingale often don't get a chance to make their case when they hit the overqualified wall. I would have loved to have had that conversation, honestly. Instead, Massingale found another job, which she started last week, and says she didn't have to dumb down her resume to get it. Michael Finch is still looking in a very chill, non-threatening way. I'm Megan McCarty-Carino for Marketplace. Vinyl records have come back in a very big way. You might have heard this. Just last year, 6.8 million vinyl records were sold direct to consumer. That's according to Luminate. That's an entertainment data company. And that number, by the way, the 6.8 million, does not include records sold in store. The thing about all that vinyl, though, is that they take up a lot of space. Here's today's installment of our series, My Economy. My name is Matt Wicker. I am the owner of Wicker Woodworks in Portland, Oregon. My company makes furniture for vinyl records and record players. So everything from like little crates all the way up to big pieces with drawers, kind of like a credenza. Um, so you, all your records and your record player are kind of right in the, in the same place. In 2015, I was living in San Francisco and my now wife and I decided to kind of do a fresh start. So I, we, I had quit my job and went back to community college and we ended up moving back to where I'm from San Jose and I knew we just needed a place to put our records so I kind of put together this crate and then put our records in there and then I had a buddy come over he said he wanted one so I was like all right I'll build you one so I went to Home Depot spent like 15 bucks went back and created what is now like the first design that we call the OG uh after that I put it on Etsy and uh within 12 hours someone had bought one and I was like okay well here we go the problem with the Bay Area and woodworking is space is so expensive and woodworking requires a lot of space. I was just not seeing a future there. Uh, my wife had always wanted to move to Portland. I was sort of against it because I was from the Bay, uh, but she finally convinced me. We came and visited and we finally moved to Portland from San Jose. The Portland shop, um, the first Christmas season hit, we did really well. Um, and then COVID happened. I had no idea if my company would completely dissolve. I had no idea if I would be able to go into work. Uh, it was just very uncertain. At that time, people were staying home. People were buying more records than ever. They were reworking their spaces. They were buying houses. And so we, we saw immense growth. 
So we just had our nine year anniversary. And so the last couple of weeks I've been really nostalgic and just thinking about how we started, where we've, how far we've come and what we are today. I sort of always looked at it as my college. You know, I'm going to do this for a few years. When I'm 30, I'll quit and I'll get a real job. But every year just keeps, you know, keeps moving forward, keeps going on. Um, and so hopefully I'll never have to get a real job. I feel that way sometimes. Matt Wicker, owner of Wicker Woodworks out in Portland, Oregon. Whatever your music source of choice or whatever you do for a living, we need your help to do this series. Tell us your story at marketplace.org slash Coming up. I think we've made some progress. I think we've got a lot more progress to go. Really? A lot. First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrial is up 201 points today. That's a half percent, 37,468. The Nasdaq lifted 200 points, one and three tenths percent, 15,005. The S&P 500 up 41. That's almost nine tenths percent, 47 and 80. We heard from Megan McCarty Carino about some generational friction in the workplace. In hiring stocks then, recruiter Corn Ferry was up eight tenths percent. Manpower Group Incorporated lifted almost three percent. Zip Recruiter up one and eight tenths of one percent today. Got a bunch of housing related numbers in the morning. In the coming year, it might be easier for some to buy a home. That's according to a report from Fannie Mae, which predicts that mortgage rates will dip below six percent in 2024. That'd be big. Home construction fell in December for the first time since August, down 4.3% today. Bond prices fell as well. Yield on the 10-year T-note rose to 4.14%. You're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. We launched a new series this month, revisiting authors we have talked to before to find out what has happened since they wrote the books that we interviewed them about. Dorothy Brown is on that list. She's a professor of law at Georgetown University, and she is kind of the scholar on race and tax policy. Her book on the subject, it's called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It, came out in 2021. And getting it written, she told me back then, was way easier said than done. The IRS does not collect or publish statistics by race. So we will never know if the tax law has a disparate impact based on race if we wait for the IRS, right? Because Mm -hmm. they don't give us the data. So I became a detective of sorts and I would read anything I could get my hands on. That would be a good proxy for taxable income. Professor Brown, it's nice to have you back on the program, man. It's great to be here. Just to to sort of bring readers up to speed, your book came out, uh, you know, two-ish something years ago. Um, it is, to get the plug in here, The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Here's my question. Have you made strides in fixing it? Have we made strides in fixing it since your book came out? I mean, it, it, kind, of, it kind of brought, sorry to... Sorry to double pump on the question here, but it did kind of bring this topic of race and taxes into the mainstream. I think it did. I think we've made some progress. I think we've got a lot more progress to go. But one of the things I've been gratified with seeing is how my research has encouraged other academics to do research in, for example, the tax enforcement area. Mm -hmm. So my book 
talks about the how the tax laws apply to everyday Americans, but I don't really look at how the IRS decides to audit people. And other people have done that. Actually, a study out of Stanford did that and showed that Black taxpayers who file for the earned income tax credit are three to five times more likely to be audited than non-Black taxpayers. So that's an extension of my research that gets me excited. Not that Black taxpayers are more likely to be audited, right. but that we know about it and we can work on fixing it. I, I want to get to the enforcement part and, and that study and the data behind it in a second. But I do want to just at the top here, because I think it's a significant thing for you, talk about your side hustle at the Treasury Department. Yes. So surprising to me, they asked me to apply to um, be on the 25-member body, which is the Treasury Advisory Committee on Racial Equity. And I applied and I was appointed. It's a two-year appointment. Um, We're just finishing up our first year. And uh, we have made recommendations to the Treasury Secretary on racial equity matters that Treasury should be focused on. And I think Treasury has not really had a racial equity lens in that Mm -hmm. institution. Mm -hmm. And I think Treasury is used to doing what Treasury wants to do. So it's been slow going in terms of making recommendations, but not really seeing either follow through Mm -hmm. or significant progress made. Let me, I'll get to the I'll get to the slow going thing in a second, the bureaucracy that I'm sure you're dealing with now for the first time. But let me ask you this. You are now after years, decades uh, of researching and writing and studying about tax policy and race. You're now in the room where it happens. And I guess what's it like in that room? You know, it's fascinating to be in the room where it happens. It's fascinating to have people other than me talking about race and tax. It's like, oh, finally. (laughs) So, you know, that's the good news. But what you realize is all the goodwill that I bring to the table and others bring to the table doesn't necessarily result in policy changes or policy reform. So being in the room where it happens is step one. But for things to happen, they have to happen when I'm not in the room mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm not yeah. the Treasury Secretary, right? So we have to, you know, think about those people in those rooms that are pretty insular and are away from the public eye. So give me a couple of for instances on on those things that you think have to happen to get us to, to racial equity in in the domestic economy, which is the charge uh, of this commission or committee. Right. So one of the things that has to happen is the Treasury has to decide that racial equity is going to be a central focus on whatever they do. So every spring they put out the Green Book and the Green Book is a publication that basically puts forth the president's agenda. Mm-hmm. One of our first recommendations was for the Green Book to have a racial equity lens and that various proposals should be discussed in the context of the racial demographics of who this is going to affect. And we have not seen much progress at all. And I don't see that coming out of Treasury, or at least I haven't seen the willingness for this to come out of Treasury. So, look, I don't know if you could get President Biden on the phone. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe you got some. I wish I could. I cannot. You know, maybe. maybe, I don't know. Uh, But you could definitely get Secretary Yellen on the phone. And I guess my question is, what would you tell her about the work you're trying to do in this committee? 
Well, Secretary Yellen attends our meetings. Secretary Yellen is briefed on what it is we do. And honestly, I don't see Secretary Yellen embracing this as something that's important and a priority. So she's in the room. She hears the recommendations. She hears them from us, you know, in real time. And then she gets a briefing book afterwards. I don't get the sense that the secretary has told all of the staff that this is a priority. What do you make of that? I make of it that this, to some extent, is a check the box exercise. It's been frustrating and disappointing that there's all of this work. There are 25 of us. We all have day jobs. We have other things to do. And we have President Biden's racial equity executive order Mm -hmm. that basically said data across the board should be publicly available on racial demographic grounds. And Treasury is one of the worst in terms of not doing that, right? When we think about race and tax, we think about the IRS that for I don't know how long has said, oh, we can't possibly be disadvantaging people by race because we don't collect race on the tax return. And then we have this study that says you may not collect race on the tax return, but somehow you have managed to target black earned income tax credit claimants like with a heat seeking mm-hmm. missile of well, over auditing. So, so, so sorry. So let me let me stop you there because it's important to what we're talking about. Right. Uh, the the IRS audits earned income tax credit uh, uh, filers more than others and earned income tax credit filers are disproportionately blacker people of color, right? And that's how they wind up targeting black Americans. Actually, no. What uh-huh. the study showed is they compared all EITC filers, yeah. right? Because people like to think, oh, it's just because of the EITC. No, no, no. They looked at all earned income tax credit filers, and they were able to show that black earned income tax credit filers were three to five times more likely oh, to wow. be all That's even than worse. Non-black. That's even worse than I described. Yes. <laughs> yes, Kai. It's worse. So you and I have been talking for six years now, right? We had you on in 2017. We had you on during George Floyd, and we had you on when your book came out. But- but the point is, we don't really know each other. If we pass each other on the street, we wouldn't know to say hello. But I, cool. I get the sense that you are a woman who is, first of all, obviously driven and obsessed with this as your field of study, which is why you've had the success you've had. But you are positive and relentless. And I guess, yes. my, I guess my question is, what does it do to you that you now have the ear of the highest people in government and it does not seem to be working. What it does to me, because you are, you you actually do know me, Guy, because relentless is the word I would use to describe me. So what it means is being in the room where it happens isn't enough, that there are levers outside of the building that need to be pressed so that, for example, the White House understand that Treasury didn't seem to get the memo, at least in my opinion, mm-hmm. Right. And what I'm seeing is the racial equity work is not getting prioritized. It always amuses me when I prep to uh, chat with you that, uh, and I think you said this in our first conversation, you got into tax policy and tax law because you wanted to get away from race. (laughs) Yes. And I've never been more wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because I deal with racism on the regular. I grew up in the South Bronx. I deal a black woman academic, I deal with racism all the time. So 
It's like, well, you know, when I wanted to be a lawyer, let me deal with something that has nothing to do with race. And I picked tax law. And, you know, I'm glad I did because now I can see that race has everything to do with tax. And I don't know if, you know, I, I, I think I was uniquely suited to go down the rabbit hole of race and tax. Um, and I don't, when I look at who else has done it, right, it hasn't been done really. So I think as a black woman going into tax law, I was in a unique perspective or, or a unique position when I read this article that just asked the question, well, how do you know if there's a race and tax problem if you don't look, right? I could imagine other tax scholars reading that line and just like saying, eh, nothing there, let me keep moving, right? Mm. So I think it was important that I went into tax law because taxes are everywhere, as I tell my students. And to understand the levers of power, you need to understand tax law. And I think it's important to bring this racial equity lens to tax law and to have someone like me who just isn't going to give up. So, you know, my appointment on the advisory committee ends next year and my work will continue when I'm no longer on that committee. Dorothy Brown is at Georgetown now. Her latest book uh, a couple of years ago, we had it on the show, is called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans. Uh, and how we can fix it. I, I do have to say, you're working on another book, right? Didn't I read that somewhere? I am. <laughs> Tell me about that one. So I'm working on a book about reparations. Oh, wow. <laughs> because, you uh, know. A, a, another topic, which is, oh my goodness, right? Race and tax wasn't controversial yeah. Yeah. enough. So let me deal with reparations. That, you know, nobody cares about that. So after, I, you know, as I finished the whiteness of wealth and I thought about the racial wealth gap, I, I started thinking, how is this ever going to get fixed? And by the time I finished The Whiteness of Wealth, I realized my next book was going to be about reparations. Hmm. So stay tuned. I, I will. Well, we'll have you on to talk about it. Chris Love Brown, it. Th- thanks very much for your time, ma'am. I appreciate it. Thank you. We did, of course, reach out to the Treasury Department for comment. They provided a list of their equity priorities and initiatives, which we have put online at marketplace.org. This final note on the way out today in which irony, it seems, is dead. Remember the meme stock craze of the early to mid-pandemic, GameStop and AMC Entertainment, that whole thing? It all started, you may or may not remember, on Reddit, which is why a report from Business Insider today that Reddit is planning to go public in March is interesting. The fact that the company is eyeing an IPO is not news. It's been rumored for a while. It's the date that's fresh. Not that this has stopped the company from going public before, but Reddit CEO Dave Hoffman said this past summer they are still not profitable. John Buckley, John Gordon, Ricardo, Anthony Parker, Amanda Petra, and Stephanie Seek are the Marketplace editing staff. Amir Bibawe is the managing editor. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Khreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. 
This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.